0: Wanna hear something crazy? For a while, this show, Darknet Diaries, was banned in India. Yeah, I was really mad when it happened. If you were in India and opened Apple Podcasts and tried to find my show, it just didn't exist. This is annoying because I have a lot of listeners in India. It's like one of the top 20 countries that listen. My Indian listeners often chat with me on Instagram. It's kind of weird how they use that app more than any other social app I'm on, but okay, whatever. That's why I hang out in different spots to soak up the culture of the internet. Anyway, why was my show banned in India? Actually, it's quite simple. In fact, it's not just mine. Hundreds of thousands of podcasts are banned in India. It comes down to this one simple thing. If any of my episodes were marked as explicit, it was not listed in Apple Podcasts in India. They have a very strict rule that does not allow explicit material to come into the country. But recently, Apple Podcasts changed that. So now when you search for my show, you get this warning box and it says, this show contains explicit content which is restricted on this computer, and it says you have to go into your settings and allow explicit content in order to play this show, which is not much of a barrier at all anymore, which is good, because this episode is all about India. These are true stories from the dark side of the internet. I'm Jack Resider. This is Darknet Diaries. Actually, the heart of the story isn't about India. Let's get technical here. This is a story about Kashmir. Now, Kashmir is a region of land that exists between China and Pakistan and India. It's very mountainous. In fact, the Himalayas run right through Kashmir. And I want to tell you the story about Kashmir that I watched unfold, live, right in front of me. It was wild and crazy, but went mostly unnoticed. Now, Kashmir... Kashmir is a complicated topic. Just to give you an example, if you look at Google Maps and try to see where Kashmir is, there aren't any solid lines that define its border. And it's tucked in between the countries of India, China, and Pakistan. And where all these countries come together is Kashmir. Millions of people live in Kashmir, But it's not a clearly defined country, with clearly defined rulers, or clearly defined borders, or a clearly defined government. And being in between all these countries means you get influences from all of them too. There's Hinduism it's coming from India, and Islam is coming from Pakistan, and Buddhism is coming from China, and this makes Kashmir a big mixture of culture and people. And some people call this region paradise, because of the novel Lost Horizon, which talked about a fictional village called Shingra La up in the Himalayan mountains. It was an isolated village from the world in such a way that it made it untarnished and perfect. There is no such place, but people like this idea, so some call Kashmir paradise. And this region of the world is an ancient place. Its history goes back for thousands of years. And during those thousands of years, a lot has changed. In the 1300s, it was ran by Muslims. Then it was taken over by the Mughal Empire, transforming it to a Hindu-Muslim culture. Then the Afghan Empire took it over, converting it back to Muslim. Then in the 1800s, there was the Anglo-Sikh War in the territory, and after that, Kashmir wound up in the hands of the British East India Company. This actually put parts of Pakistan, India, and Kashmir under British rule. And all was calm and quiet until 1947. In 1947, something big happened. The British East India Company dissolved and new nations were established. This was the year that both India and Pakistan gained independence, pretty much forming two new nations. But the area of Kashmir, it wasn't clear which country that should fall under. So it just resumed as princely states, which basically means it was locally governed, not falling under either India or Pakistan, but with the option that any of the princely states of Kashmir could join India or Pakistan at any time. Now, what happened next started a feud that continues to this day. Marauders, rebels from the Muslim side of Kashmir came into the Hindu side and started pillaging. They ransacked towns and killed people. The Indian army flew in to establish troops to defend the town, since Kashmir did not have a strong enough army to defend itself. The battles were bloody and long and drawn out. The Indian soldiers would beat back the raiders, but they would just regroup and come back with more force, pushing the line forward. Then more Indian troops would be flown in, and this would push back the raiders once again. Now, at this point, Kashmir called for peace, and Pakistan agreed. But the battle waged on. See, the rebels weren't from the Pakistani military. They were from the Muslim side of Kashmir. So it was technically out of Pakistan's control. They were denying involvement with this. But the battles continued. Raiders would attack the Indian armies, pushing them back. And then India would regroup and push back the other way. Towns were overtaken by marauders, set fire and looted. The Indian army would come liberate the town and gain control of it. This waged on all through the winter. Now, winter in the Himalayas is not a friendly place. Yet many of these battles took place in the mountains in the snow. And many troops would have to cross the mountains to get the high ground on the enemy. Hiking up over the snowy peaks with all their gear, it was brutal. This war went on for two years, and I'm sure at some point Pakistan had to have joined the fight because they were seeing that this was an opportunity for them to take parts of Kashmir for good. And they did occupy parts of Kashmir during this. But eventually, after two years, the dust settled and an official ceasefire was called. Who won? I don't know. But I do see a body count. 1,100 Indian and Kashmir soldiers dead and 6,000 Muslims dead. It appears that India had secured the southern territories, but Pakistan still had control over some of the western areas, and that's how it was going to stay. Things sort of became relatively quiet and calm until 1965. In 1965, Pakistan used its army to infiltrate Kashmir, but India quickly mobilized and fought back, ultimately pushing Pakistan back out. This battle lasted only 17 days, but thousands of soldiers died. A ceasefire was agreed on, and all was calm and quiet again until 1999. In 1998, Pakistan detonated the bomb. They became the ninth country in the world to acquire nuclear weapons, and they tested it by blowing it up underground, under a mountain, And there's a video of this, where a whole mountain is sort of shaking its dust off like a dirty dog. And with this newly acquired superpower, Pakistan decided to take Kashmir by force. But that same year, India also established nuclear weapons too. So this wasn't going to be easy and may end up getting really ugly. The Pakistani army invaded Kashmir. The Indian army fought back And this looked really bad for Pakistan. They seemingly were the aggressor here, and they just didn't seem to be coordinated. So they were pushed back, and a ceasefire was agreed on. Hundreds of soldiers on both sides died during this battle. And after that, things were not quiet or calm ever again. As you can see, tensions between these four entities just keeps heating up. It's not a battle between just India and Pakistan. There are many people who live in Kashmir, millions of people. And they also want their own independence. And China doesn't want to lose its grip on the region either. So for the last 30 years, this has been the most militarized area in the world. India has just been sending troops there in mass. Some say there are well over 600,000 Indian troops in Kashmir. 600,000! And India will say that they're just protecting Kashmir from terrorists and militant Muslims. But the UN has investigated some of this and found the Indian military has not been so good themselves. They have repeatedly infiltrated into the Muslim side of Kashmir and killed or kidnapped people. Often these are militant groups, but innocent civilians will get caught up in the gunfights or get mistargeted. Like I was saying earlier, there's no clear border of Kashmir. Instead, they have something called a line of control. On one side, it's controlled by Pakistan, and on the other side, it's controlled by India. And this line of control is fortified by a wall or a fence, with highly armed military guards defending the borders. On a weekly basis, you can see people throwing rocks at each other or demanding freedom from the other side to just leave. And this can often heat up and become ugly. And it's not uncommon to see someone open fire on the rival military or throw bombs over the fence. And this is just the current state of living in Kashmir now. It's brutal, raw, and horrible. There's no peace there. There hasn't been for the last 40 years. And if you add up all the people that have been killed or went missing in that time, the numbers are staggering. Upwards of 70,000 people have gone missing in the last 30 years just from military conflicts. And sometimes mass graves are found where over a thousand bodies have been buried. So if you can imagine this history going on for the last few decades, it brings us to now, 2019. Kashmir still hasn't completely moved to either Pakistan or India rule. About half of Kashmir is under India law and a third is under Pakistani law and the rest is still locally governed, which makes it a very complicated region. And it's a contested territory, a a PVP zone. And this is a region where there are ever-present military soldiers standing ready in case the enemy comes in. And so in 2019, on February 14th, a convoy of Indian soldiers were traveling in a van going through Pulwama, one of the Indian-controlled cities in Kashmir, when terror struck. Forty soldiers have been killed after a suicide car bomber rammed a bus carrying Indian paramilitary forces in India-controlled Kashmir. Well, the explosion occurred as the convoy reached the outskirts of the disputed region's main city of Srinagar. At least five other vehicles were also damaged. Local newspapers reported that militant group jaish e mohammed has claimed responsibility for the attack. Hmm. Very interesting. The group claiming responsibility was jaish e mohammed This is a jihadist terrorist group active in the area of Kashmir, but is aligned with Pakistan. In fact, their mission is to separate Kashmir from India and move it under Pakistani rule. So it was this group that packed an SUV full of explosives and rammed it into the side of a van full of Indian troops, killing about 40 troops, as well as the suicide bomber who was driving the SUV. Immediately, India's response was to urge Pakistan to condemn this group and to arrest them and to stop them. But Pakistan seemingly was quiet. They didn't seem to do anything about this attack, which angered the people of India. And to help tell the rest of the story, I brought in two people from India. Is my voice clear? So, uh, what do you want to know about They both asked that I not use your real name here because, well, privacy reasons. But because they were both living in India at the time and watching the news, this really bothered them.
1: It was like the feeling of unity between among us, among the nation this time. So it it got like very outrageous and it <clears throat> we always feel... Like whenever we are attacked uh, by terrorists, we always have the same feeling. But this time it was like it is enough. We can't tolerate this.
2: Then we get we get angry. Okay. After that, what happened is we get we get a little bit angry.
1: Not for the first time. I, uh, for uh, like my last ten to fifteen years of my life, I've been uh, I'm attacked on this, attacked there, bomb blast in this hotel, like Taj Hotel in Mumbai and in markets, soldiers are killed uh, uh, in their camps while they're sleeping and this is bad. But when Pakistan is doing like these things again and again, like then we have to do something. We have to take some steps. We can't be like, okay, we can tolerate this peace.
0: That is not the case. These guys tell me pretty much everyone in India was outraged over this attack. And if you think about who is in India, you start to think who might be in position to actually do something about it. A new group of people who were not around in 1947 or 1965, or maybe not even in 1999. The modern era has a new domain of warfare. And if you think about it, there are a ton of really smart IT people in India. Coders, engineers... And yes, hackers. The Indian hacker community was also very upset with this. And they were in the perfect position to do something about it. Uh, Indian hacker
1: community, like, they they took some action. Like, they started uh, attacking Pakistani government websites. So what happened
2: was, there is a guy, Okay, he started he dumped like two... He tells
0: me that the first thing he saw was that one hacker from India hacked into a Pakistani government website, used SQL injection to get in, took all the stuff from the database and then publicly dumped it for everyone to see. Now again, even though it was a terrorist group who attacked the Indian troops in Kashmir, there was widespread belief that this terrorist group was under protection from being assisted by the Pakistani government. At no point did the Pakistani government condemn these attacks or try to help arrest those involved. So for the Indian hackers to attack the government of Pakistan, it made sense at the time.
1: And they want to take revenge and, you know, send message to Pakistan that, we are not going to tolerate this again. So it was more like a message to them rather than, you know, hurting the people. It was, it is not against people. It is all against the government and their army and terrorism.
0: So within 24 hours of the terrorist bombing, the hackers started ramping up their attacks on Pakistan's websites.
2: So after that, what happened, we uh, came together. We talked about like, this is happening. We just spoke a little bit on Instagram, and we starting everybody starting doing his own thing.
0: They rallied together in chat rooms and online to find targets and work together to take them down. They would look for any websites that ended in .gov.pk, which is the top-level domain for Pakistani government websites.
1: Like uh, Multan.gov.pk was down and and, like, the foreign ministry websites were down. Uh, they were de-dossed and someone was, uh, some of them
0: were defaced. A deface is sort of similar to writing graffiti on a building. You pretty much write whatever message you want on their website that you're attacking, letting them know that you were there and this is your message. And the messages they were writing were something like, this website has been hacked by Indian hackers, or we will never forget about this terrorist attack. And it wasn't just one hacker involved. Many websites were starting to get hit, and each one would say it was hacked by a different Indian hacker group.
2: We changed the pictures uh, of our website.
0: Now it was around this time I logged into Instagram just to see what people are doing there, what foods they're eating, what vacations are going on, this kind of stuff. And you know what? I have a lot of followers on Instagram from India. And so I was getting a ton of private messages. I was getting messages from so many hackers saying things like, Jack, look what's going on here. Look at this, look, look at this. And they were sending me link after link of posts and stories. It was incredible. I was seeing databases being dumped, websites defaced, websites down, usernames and passwords posted. There were so many posts I could barely keep up and jot everything down. I was watching over a dozen Instagram accounts, actively hacking into Pakistani websites and then posting about what they've done. And on top of that, I was seeing evidence of many more hackers also involved. It was crazy and intense. A full cyber conflict had erupted right before my eyes. Uh, what was going through your mind when you're seeing all these hacks going on?
1: Uh, the feeling was like that, uh, I have a power to make a statement against terrorism when all other people were like, all other the people were like, we want to do something. We were actually doing something like as a cybersecurity person for our country and for the martyrs that were died uh, for the country.
0: While I was watching this unfold, I barely understood what was happening because I didn't know the history of what these attacks were or who the players are. I didn't even know what country the .gov.pk websites were affiliated to yet but it was fascinating to watch soon i found the chat room of one of the hacking groups and joined it and sat and watched silently but it was quiet like too quiet i started getting into their um was it their discord channel to watch what they were doing but it really seemed quiet in there um is this a mm-hmm. illegal hacking group or what are these people
1: no no these all are like normal people cybersecurity people mm. We don't uh, most of them might uh, not be believing in illegal things and doing illegal stuff and malicious stuff or to harm anybody. But this thing was so uh, frustrating that for the normal people that they can't do anything because attacks were happening again and again. And previous government did not take any uh, strict action against terrorism. So it was the frustration in people who came out in the form of hacking, uh, of cybersecurity people. I would say that they are not like any malicious person or illegal hackers. Maybe one or two, but most of them are like people.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating. I didn't understand that.
1: Yeah, because, uh, in on the, uh, on my account, there were many, many children and normal people who coming to me and saying that how can i help Uh, anything i can do for you because you are doing a great job and i don't know how to hack. please teach me hacking so i can contribute to this cause and like it was patriotic and very energetic at the same time and yeah they were all normal people I just wanted to make a statement and, you know, fight against terrorism and the government who is supporting it.
0: Now, I promised my guests I wouldn't reveal their names or say who they are. But you can probably guess at this point that they had front row seats to all this or were involved somehow themselves. Because I don't like bringing experts on. I want to hear firsthand experiences, what went down. So when making this episode, I did reach out to about a dozen of these hackers that I saw hacking... But they were all too worried and didn't want to come on the show and they didn't want to admit to doing anything and they didn't want to come forward even though i watched them hacking and posting things right there on instagram but i did have conversations with many of them to learn as much as i can about the story and what was going on and why
1: i think the whole indian hacker community came together and took this action
0: (laughs) one particular thing completely threw me by surprise and still today i don't understand how they did this Actually, I want you to try this too. If you can, if you're able, take a moment right now and do a Google image search for something. It has to be images. Okay. So search Google images for best toilet paper in the world. Go ahead. I'll wait a moment. What do you see when you search Google images for best toilet paper in the world?
2: If you Google that, you will get Pakistan's I think flag and prime minister the president, I think his his name on the his name on a toilet paper, his picture on a toilet paper, like Pakistani flag
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Somehow, the hackers rigged the Google algorithms so that if you search Google Images for best toilet paper, it shows a picture of Pakistan's flag. And yes, you can still see that today right now if you look. Someone, please explain to me how they did this.
2: <laughs> the Pakistani reporters were saying that uh, we switched Imran Khan's picture. Exactly, I don't know he's president of Pakistan, but he changed his picture through a toilet paper or something, toilet sheet or something like that. I didn't, did, I didn't do it. Do it, did it? I don't know. Some other guy, but he did it, and he was on that thing was on the news, flashing, and everything. Jeez.
0: And whether these hacks were effective or not, it all fueled the frenzy of what was going on. Even these tiny slaps in the face that might not have done any damage at all were all wins for the hackers. And wherever you looked, the hackers were winning really well. The IT and hacker community of India was completely owning so many Pakistani websites. It was a massacre. These hacks continued all night long. Stay with us to find out what happens next, because what happens after this takes everyone by surprise. The next day, I logged in Instagram, and still, there was hacking going on like crazy. I was seeing more usernames and passwords posted to websites that you could just see, use, and log in with. Like,
2: user ID and password of few places, like, few places a few uh, domains. Pakistani Navy and Pakistani army and the databases few databases and so many things
0: and now news articles and stories were coming out about these cyber attacks on Pakistan
3: yeah it felt it felt very
1: powerful that uh, we had a power in our hands normal people can do anything if they want and uh, we wanted to send a message directly to the Pakistani government and we did. We appeared on their uh, news channels, the top news channels that the websites were hacked by Indian hackers and our messages and our warnings were, you know, published on their newspaper and the news channels. So it was clearly a win for us if we are able to do that uh, being a normal person.
0: These cyber attacks continued to rain down on Pakistan's websites. Day after day, it was growing more wild with more fervor. While a lot of people in India were cheering on these hackers to do something to retaliate, there were also a lot of people in India condemning these hackers, saying things like it's embarrassing to the country that hackers are defacing Pakistani websites and to let the government sort it out properly. But the cyber attacks were growing and starting to get more serious.
2: Okay more people who is, uh, who have experience on SCADA.
0: Whoa, SCADA? This is getting pretty serious now. SCADA systems are industrial control systems. These are the types of computers that run power plants, factories, or water treatment facilities, or dams. If hackers could get into Pakistan's SCADA systems, this could be a really big deal.
2: So we are trying to access a uh, few, uh, Machineries, we are trying to access a few different uh, companies' heavy machineries. Like, if they are open, uh, if, uh, if any of the endpoint is open to the internet, we are trying to hit it, hit it, and trying to get access to it.
0: But before they were able to get into any of the SCADA systems, about a week after the suicide bombing, all the hacking came to a sudden halt.
4: It's to India now. That country says it has destroyed a militant camp inside Pakistan in an overnight airstrike across the ceasefire border known as the Line of Control. Indian media is reporting some 200 casualties in the raid on the alleged camp in Balakot. Pakistan acknowledged that Indian military aircraft had violated its airspace but denied the reports of casualties.
0: The Indian military flew jets into Pakistan and bombed the militant camp thought to be where the terrorists were training this attack was significant enough to make all the hackers stop. Everyone kind of felt like the combination of the cyber attacks and missile strikes were enough to let Pakistan know how angry they were with this. And that's when the hacking ended.
2: My dad is from Indian government. He works for Indian government. He's, he's in Air Force. Exactly, he was in Air Force. He's retired now. and So that's why I'm very much connected to this thing. I was very much connected to this incident. Because uh, it hurt some way, it, it it felt bad.
0: When did you so, yeah. did you show your dad that some of this hacking was going on after the attack, and what did he think?
2: <laughs> my dad, my dad didn't know what I do. My dad didn't know what I do.
0: Well, I mean, you could show him. Here, look at some of these other guys that are doing this to the Pakistani websites.
2: Yeah, but my dad don't even know what I do, so I am not going to tell him what I do. They know that I work in computers and all. I'm a computer software designer, software engineer, that's it. They don't even know much about my work. So I'm not going to tell them that. Hmm,
0: that's your little secret then.
2: Yeah, that's between me and my... Like, yeah, that's my little secret.
0: Now, here's where this story totally unravels in my head, and I'm not even sure which thread to pull on anymore.
4: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. <laughs> Before Chandan
0: Imran Khan, the prime minister of Pakistan, came out and said, quote, Pakistan is moving towards stability. Why would we do something like this? If you have any actionable intelligence that a Pakistani was involved in these terrorist attacks, give it to us. I guarantee you we will take action, not because we're under pressure, but because the terrorists are acting as enemies of Pakistan, end quote. India decided to fly two more fighter jets over the line of control. I don't know what their mission was, but Pakistan was able to shoot down both planes and even captured one of the pilots. When the Pakistani army captured the pilot, they interviewed him. Here's what the pilot said.
3: The officers of the Pakistani army have looked after me very well. They're thorough gentlemen, starting from the captain who rescued me from the mob and from his jawan, from the soldiers. And thereafter, uh, the officers into the unit which I was taken to. Okay. This is what I would expect my army to behave as and uh, I'm very impressed by the Pakistani army.
0: Now, granted, this pilot gave this interview while he was captured, so who knows if he said this under duress. It he was held for two days and then given back to India safely because of, quote, a gesture of peace. Now, honestly, if we step back for a second and listen to all this, we're only hearing the story from India's side and a little bit of the story from Pakistan's side. And even though this is a story about Kashmir, I feel like I'm ignoring Kashmir entirely. So I decided to call someone up who lives there.
5: Hello. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's okay, it's good. How are you?
0: This is on. My name is On and it's visible on Twitter. He knows a ton about Kashmir and Pakistan. Because
5: I live here. My home is like six, 700 meters from the border. She what border
0: are you talking about? Are you talking about the line of uh, control yeah, line or of control. are you talking yeah, about... the line of control.
5: I am in Kashmir, so it's line of control.
0: As I was saying earlier, some parts of Kashmir are controlled by Pakistan and some parts are controlled by India. On lives on the Pakistan-controlled side of Kashmir, just a few hundred meters away from the Indian-controlled side. And he says, being so close to the border means there's always violence looming.
5: A few days ago, uh, India fired uh, some long-range guns. And uh, there were six funerals from one home in a day. So stuff like that is hard to process. And with time, it's part of the daily routine. Like every few months, this happens. And now after Modi has been the prime minister, uh, this has increased a lot.
0: Are you allowed to just walk across the line of control whenever you want?
5: No. There's uh, the area between both forces. It's like a no man's land. But uh, uh, if you're crossing the border, uh, either side is going to shoot you.
0: Mm. So this gives you a better idea on what's going on in that area. And on here pays a lot of attention to the politics that goes on.
3: Now, uh, the part which uh, the Indian guys you had on podcast missed, that the guy who blew up, he how was he rationalized?
0: Oh yeah, back to this terrorist attack that killed 40 Indian soldiers in Kashmir. After all this settled down, some investigations took place to see what happened. They found out more about this terrorist who did this attack.
3: His name was Adil Dar. He was from Lethapura in Kashmir, the Indian administrator of Kashmir.
0: Oh, he's from the Indian-controlled side of Kashmir? Okay. No, I'm reading an article in the online newspaper India Today, and in this article they interviewed the guy's dad. His dad said when his son was 17, he was going to school one day, and some Indian soldiers stopped him and harassed him claiming his kid was throwing rocks. His dad says the Indian troops beat him up that day and hurt him and told him not to throw rocks. And this, I guess, planted a seed in this 17 year old. And he grew tired of Indian troops in his town mistreating the people of Kashmir. So for the next three years, he grew more and more hateful of those Indian troops.
3: And after that, he wanted to join militants. So he joined a militant group. He came, went to the Pakistani side of Kashmir and he got trained there by the militant group and he came back and then he blew up the van. Now, uh, that's a point where everyone chooses to see it differently. Like uh, if someone from Kashmir chooses to say it, he would say that he was fighting against the oppression. If someone from Pakistan's side choose to see it, they might see it like, okay, we got something out of it. Like we made a, we killed a few soldiers. And uh, definitely when the Indians would see it, they would see it like, uh, okay, this was a terrorist who killed our troops. But the point is, these were the troops uh, who beat him up and harassed him while he was coming back from school. He was a kid, he was 17 years old, Uh, no, 17 or 20. He was 20 years old when he blew
0: up. See what I mean by how complicated of a situation this is? There's so many nuances and so much violence that happens on a daily basis there that there's no way to know who or what or why some violence happens and if it's justified or not. There's so many strong and heated opinions from nationalists and separatists and multiple factions and countries. It's a mess. But despite this information, there are still people from India who strongly believe that Pakistan is fighting a proxy war. And this is where the Pakistani government might be giving weapons or intelligence to the militant groups, such as Jaishi Muhammad, to fight the Indian army. And this is so the Pakistani government can deny that they're fighting in the region at all to avoid scrutiny from the UN or India or the world. And yeah, I don't know. This might be happening. You know what? It probably is happening. Pakistan is probably funding these militant groups secretly somehow. But at the same time, there might be other groups involved, like the UAE or Saudi Arabia. They might be giving weapons to these militant groups, too. And that just complicates things even more, which I don't even want to get into that because I feel like we're getting away from the point of the story here, which is hacking.
3: This is not a new thing, Uh, like hacking government websites or anything like that. This is not a new thing. It goes back to 2007 to 2013. This was happening on daily basis. Like every day you wake up, if you're in an IRC chat room of either side of the hackers, they're like, okay, this guy hacked our site. We are going to hack this site and this and this and this and this. This was a like regular thing. Let me give you an example.
0: An begins to send me links to many websites. The New York Times, The Free Press Journal, CNBC, and The Guardian. The articles are very fascinating. Tit for tat hacking has absolutely been going back and forth between Pakistan and India for a decade now. Here's just some examples. When the Mumbai terrorist attack happened in 2008, Indian hackers DDoSed and defaced some of Pakistani government websites. In retaliation, a hacker group calling themselves the Pakistan Cyber Army defaced the website of the Indian Oil and Natural Gas Company shortly after, And years later, Indian hacktivists hit a Pakistani airport with ransomware. And they did this on Pakistan's Independence Day, which was also the anniversary of the Mumbai terrorist attack. Some security research firms have observed that some more serious hacks have originated from India and targeted companies in Pakistan. This included some sophisticated phishing attempts and malware being sent. It's unknown, but this could have been the work of the Indian military, but there's just no solid evidence of that. And then around the same time, there's been a series of hacks against Indian embassies, and these are email phishing attempts with nasty malware attached, and the malware calls back to IP addresses located in Pakistan. These attacks are also more sophisticated than what a typical hacker might try, and which makes some people think this might be the work of the Pakistani army. However, there's no proof of that either. And a few years back, a hacker group calling themselves the Pakistan Cyber Army hacked into the CBI, which is India's FBI, and this made a lot of news. And in 2015, some Pakistani hackers got control of the website NIC.in. Now, this is a big deal because this website controls the entire domain registry for all websites ending in .in, which is India.
3: These are the guys who manage the .in domain.
0: And they were hacked by... The
3: Pakistani hackers.
0: If you control this website, you could theoretically have control over every website that ends in .in. And this article I'm reading says because of this hack into nic.in, over 30,000 websites were hacked in 2014.
3: From a cyber perspective, this is not a... I won't say it's a new thing. Like, two days ago, uh, there was a guy who hacked BJP Delhi. Did you get that? Uh, Did you you heard about that?
0: Yeah, actually I saw Elliot Alderson tweeting about this first. Some hackers defaced India's Legislative Assembly website.
3: India's official party's website and it was hacked. And who hacked this one? Uh, There's a guy named Muhammad Bilal. He hacked this item. Where's he from? He's from Pakistan. So, like I said, this is not a new thing. This keeps happening every few weeks.
0: Holy cow, this is nuts. Yes, of course, when tensions are high in the real world and people are throwing rocks or shooting guns at each other, you can absolutely expect a cyber conflict to also be waging online too. And now that I look at it, yeah, it's happening in a big way. There's a law in India called Article 370, which gives Kashmir a sort of independence, allowing Kashmir to choose who should govern it. Well, that law got revoked in August, which means India has taken official control of Kashmir. It's no longer an option by the local government. It's now part of India. Well, as you can imagine, this was met with a lot of protesting. First, let me play a clip for you from within the Indian parliament when this was initially announced. I can't understand what they're saying, but I want you to listen to the way this was received within Indian parliament. I don't know about you, but whenever I watch some other country's parliament conduct their meetings, it always looks so weird. And this one really does look weird to me. Half the room is clapping, but they don't clap with two hands. They clap by banging the desk with one hand. And the other half of the room is shouting, yelling, standing up and screaming. It's madness, and you can't understand anyone. And this went on for a solid 40 minutes.
4: Something historical has happened is not ordinary day-to-day functioning of the bills and passes.
0: Soon after Article 370 was revoked, protests erupted. First, large crowds of people living in Kashmir took to the streets to protest, saying they want Kashmir to be free and independent. The protests in Kashmir heated up a lot. It was getting crazy and out of control. It became so bad that India initiated a curfew on the Indian-controlled part of Kashmir. Because there are over 600,000 Indian troops in Kashmir, which is enough to put 10 troops on every corner to enforce a curfew. Making sure everyone stays off the streets and does not go outside. The point was to keep the protesters and the violence down. But this just was met with more anger and people still protested and went outside and threw rocks at the Indian army. The Indian government ended up taking all mobile and internet connections down for the entire Indian controlled portion of Kashmir. India had to send an additional 100,000 troops into the area to help keep the peace. I guess that's one way to do it. The curfew and the internet and mobile outages stayed on for a week, and then two weeks, and then three weeks, and four weeks. Now, there are millions of people who were subject to this curfew, like Eight million people live in this area. And so you can imagine this was met with protests on a daily basis. Rocks were thrown at the Indian army, who would then retaliate with pellet guns or tear gas or other weapons, telling them to go back inside. Sometimes the protests would get really crazy, and this would result in people dying. Not to mention, people were dying from lack of medicine and food, too. The curfew remained on for over a month. And then two months. At this point, Imran Khan, the prime minister of Pakistan, went to the UN to talk about this curfew. Here's what he said.
4: What sort of a mindset would lay siege to 8 million people with 900,000 troops? Women, children, sick people, locked in as animals. What is going to happen when the curfew is lifted will be a bloodbath. The people will come out. There are 900,000 troops there these 900,000 troops what are they going to do when the demo, when they come out there'll be a bloodbath and we will fight and when and when and when a nuclear armed country fights to the end it will have consequences far beyond the borders it will have consequences for the world which is why i repeat i'm here because i'm warning you it's not a threat It's a fair worry that where are we headed. And I've come here to tell the UN, you've got to, this is a test for the United Nations. You are the one who guaranteed the people of Kashmir the right of self-determination. This is the time to take action. And number one action must be that India must lift this inhuman curfew, which has lasted for 55 days.
0: After three months of a curfew, India has started to lift just a little bit of the curfew now, allowing people to go outside for a little bit every day. Shops are now open for a few hours a day, but schools remain empty. It's not fully lifted even now. Today, it's still very restricted. Mobile calling is restored But the Indian government has still banned SMS text messages, and internet is still down too. Even though I had someone who lives in Kashmir talk about life there, I still feel like this episode barely hears the voices of people from Kashmir. They've been fought over by two nuclear-armed countries for a long time, and during that time, they haven't been treated well by either. It's like the old saying, when two elephants fight, the thing that suffers the most is the grass. They deserve peace and freedom, not the constant sound of gunfire over their heads. And here they are, under a curfew set on them by the Indian government. Taking away internet from the people is not a good way to treat your own people. So yeah, this region of the world, I don't know. It's a flashpoint. Tensions have been high here for the last 90 days, for sure. But it's been high for this whole year. And even before that, the tensions have been high for the last 30 years. And before that, it just keeps going and going for thousands of years. And when tensions are this high, hackers will take action into their own hands and do what they know how to do. Use a computer to get into things that they aren't supposed to get into and cause damage and destruction. And this is a way to protest. And it shows how angry you are. And now I'm tuned into this. So I'll be watching to see what unfolds between Pakistan, India, and Kashmir. a big thank you to our two guests for being brave enough to come on the show and tell their story the world is changing you have the power to change it so do the right thing this show is made by me your friendly IRC op, jack reciter sound design this episode was by andrew merriweather and editing help from damien our theme music is by breakmaster cylinder who wants me to tell you it's a car part And even though my apps suddenly close and I start hearing strange clicking noises on my phone every time I say it, this is Darknet Diaries.